As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. If you're serious about worrying about the American character, if you're serious about worrying about America's position in the world, if you're serious about the importance of character in a political leader, if you are content with the way this numbskull has mismanaged and proved delinquent in addressing the COVID virus, be my guest. Walk off the edge of the cliff. Just don't take the rest of us with you. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Todd Gitlin knows a great deal about media, American politics, and social movements, both from the perspective of a participant and analyst. He's currently professor of journalism and a lot more at Columbia University. He's written 18 wide-ranging books, both fiction and nonfiction, and numerous articles. Todd's work extends from his time as president of Students for a Democratic Society in the 1960s to a half-century as writer, sociologist, communication scholar, novelist, poet, and public intellectual. Of late, he's been working against Trump through Save Our Republic and Writers Against Trump. I was honored to have the chance to talk to him and hope you will take the time to listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Todd Gitlin of Columbia. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Okay, so I'm Todd Gitlin. I profess journalism, sociology, communications, and American studies at Columbia University. I have written 18 books, of which the most recent was Occupy Wall Street, published uh, in 2012. And the next one is a novel called The Opposition, set in the 60s when I was in the opposition fervently and unremittingly. Since then, I have written a whole bunch of books of different kinds, novels, poetry, uh, books about media, uh, books about American politics, lots of articles, a ridiculous number of words toward what end it's not for me to know. I have been deeply immersed this season in starting a couple of groups. One is Writers Against Trump, and the other is a scholars-academics group called Save Our Republic. 
I have been writing op-ed pieces forever. I just published one in the USA Today, which is a, an appeal to young progressives to step up to the plate and decide we need to breathe before we can campaign for the millennium. That is to say, we need to walk through the door called Joe Biden. Will that do? That's more than enough. And I think it's extremely hard when you've been so active for so long to encapsulate it. So I appreciate it. I read the the USA Today editorial. It hits me kind of right where I've been for a while. For three years on this podcast, I've been interviewing people across the spectrum of progressive Democrats, as they might all call themselves, from people who are leading movements you know, on climate to people who are you know, running the DCCC and very much more into pragmatic establishment politics. And my own view is we need all, all of the breadth of that coalition at this time to win and to move the country in a different direction. You come from a different place than I do, having kind of really been on that movement side in the 60s. And I wonder where you find yourself now in that pragmatic politics versus movement division that we have. I am a long-suffering pragmatist, meaning that I cannot not pay attention to the likely outcomes that result from an action. I respect the purity of the moral impulse, but I don't want to govern myself by it. And I've lived through too much turmoil and disappointment, as well as surprising outcomes of a better sort, to know that uh, it's a luxury to think that you can simply theologize or emotionalize or vent and mistake that emotion or venting for politics. Politics takes place in a world of other human beings who have their own purposes, who have their own values, who have their own calculations. This happens to be, a rather, for me, a relatively easy moment in that it's all hands on deck. And I'm not interested in arguing the nuances of the merits, let's say, of um, some fathomlessly impossible ambition at a time when it's life against death. I see the t- terms really quite simple at this juncture. It's it's Eros versus Thanatos. It is a door open to some kind of reconstitution and a walking into a wall and then through the wall into an abyss. So I don't understand why at this juncture one might want to insist on the cleanliness of one's hands before other objectives. I, I simply think this is political malfeasance and uh, philosophical emptiness. I have a, a friend and former coworker who continually attends an, an event I have in Vermont every year. And when he came last, he planted a lot of Sanders signs around his tent and he sent posts of his house, which was lit up with pro Sanders messages. And I get the appeal there. 
And yet he has told me he will not be voting because of Biden's lack of purity. And I find it heart-wrenching because I see a guy running for president who has a progressive platform, who's been in the middle of the Democratic Party, and then I see his opponent who has so many flaws and is trying to move us to something more autocratic. What would you say to someone like that? Well, first thing I would say is, well, Bernie disagrees with you. Bernie thinks it's imperative to elect Joe Biden. The second thing I would say is that in the course of his long and remarkable career, Bernie Sanders has made a whole lot of deals and made compromises and changed his views according to the political exigencies of the moment. It's well known in Vermont that he's changed his views, for example, about gun licensing and ownership. I say this not to detract from Bernie at all. A great, great respect to somebody who's just a man of principle, who has sustained a political career for almost half a century now, who tried doing it as a complete outsider at first in something called the Liberty Union Party, which was organized, I believe, in 1970, got nowhere, got two or three percent of the vote. It wasn't until he's decided to do retail on the ground politics running for mayor of Burlington that he actually launched a viable political career that put him in a position to have the largely impressive, largely tonic effect that he had on American politics over the last year. So being purer than Bernie, I think, wins you points in some non-existent heaven, but it's not the heaven that Bernie aspires to go to, nor do I. If your friend is, how old? I think he's in his 30s. So, I, I mean, he probably doesn't want to hear a lecture about where this purity has led in the past, but I'll just tick off a couple of moments in my own life. I was one of those in the new left in 1968 who could not imagine voting for Hubert Humphrey. And I, in fact, was living in such an encapsulated world at the time. I didn't know anybody who was willing to vote for Hubert Humphrey because he was the war camp. He was Johnson's tool, Johnson's lackey. The result of that decision by me and many hundreds of thousands, but not even millions of people who were dead set against the Vietnam War and against the careening law and order version of racism that's afflicted us since, the upshot was the election of Richard Nixon, the prolongation of the Vietnam War, for another five years, another 21,000 American dead, another million or so, but who was counting Southeast Asians dead. That closed-mindedness that I and my crowd evinced was beautifully motivated. We were revolted by the Democratic Party, but we were also short-sighted. Let me skip ahead now to 2000. The supporters of Ralph Nader in that election helped bring to office George W. Bush and the horrendous Iraq war, which is still flowing like live lava out of its place in the Middle East and damaging the refugees and, and, and the rest of the world, all in the name of purity, all in the name of a kind of meticulousness that politics does not permit. Politics 
is done with dirty hands. There are no others. So I would try to discuss with your friend the historical precedents. And I've just given a few American examples. All I have to do is say 1933 Germany, I think, and anyone who knows history will know that the German communists and the German social democrats at the time when Hitler was coming to power thought that each other were the prime enemies. And the result was that the uh, fascists came to power and everything that followed. They first came after the communists and then they came after the social democrats. They came after the Jews and the disabled and the gays and you know the rest of it. History is like this. History is not a game of Monopoly where we get you know clear choices. It's not even high stakes poker. It's nothing but itself. It's just human beings in circumstances that none of us chose, trying to make our way through an imperfect world, which, by the way, will never be perfect. And I would try to convince your friend that this is the ground on which he walks. A failure of, to vote for Biden is tantamount to a vote for Donald Trump. How do you see Trump? We've watched him campaign for office in 2016 and, and in the bunch of years before that. We've watched him govern now for nearly a full term. How do you place him historically? What do you compare him to? How do you view him? He has no precedent in American history. He's a wannabe fascist. What inhibits him from implementing fascism is the creaky constitutional machinery that has placed obstacles in his way. There are constitutional obstacles, there are juridical obstacles, there are the obstacles of public opinion. He doesn't really have a party. He sort of hijacked the Republican Party. But fortunately, he does not have an organized army, although he has vigilantes and he has militias. He would like to be a king. He is a deranged monarch. Mad King George might be a precedent, but his dynasty ended for Americans a long time ago. I, I think he is the extension of everything vile and raw and primitive and barbaric in American history. He's the return of the repressed. He has formed this diabolical alliance with ignorant and angry people, resentful people, who think that America's troubles are the consequence of liberal domination, um, nasty intellectuals, embittered people of color, uh, nasty women, as he likes to say, and so on. Give him his way. Give him four more years to do his damage. We're talking about a world that is well nigh uninhabitable by the time he leaves office. And I mean that quite literally. I've been paying close attention to climate change, not long enough, but for six or seven years now and been quite active on a number of fronts on that score. The fires, the Mediterranean hurricane, the floods, the encroachment on low-lying islands and countries like Bangladesh, the melting of the glaciers in Antarctica, the uh, end of ice and the beginning of slush in the Arctic, all of this is proceeding apace, and it will take 
organized, concerted global action to prevent the worst of it. You know, we don't have a chance if Trump has his way. We don't have a chance of making a habitable life, let alone, and I haven't even said anything about the economic madness that is upon us, the grotesque inequality, the boom in racism and and police malfeasance that we've seen under Trump's sheltering wings. Can I say this is a no-brainer? I see it as a no-brainer, and I can hardly physically face the idea of his re-election personally. But how do you explain the durability of his support and his support where it counts in the party that he has hijacked? Okay, so two good questions. Let me take them one at a time. The remarkable thing about Trump's relation to his base is that his support level has been extraordinarily, unprecedentedly constant. He's never gone below about 36% in national approval ratings or above about 43. This is unprecedented. Every other president since they started doing these measures under Harry Truman has oscillated wildly. So what does this tell me? It tells me that there is a psychological lock, there's a bond, which we can, I think, fairly call the bond that is typical of a cult, in which people applaud him, not despite the fact that he's vile, and rageful and vicious, but because of it, because he is permitted in the under the rules of American politics today, he's permitted to say what's on their minds, or I should say what's in their minds so deep they may not want to acknowledge it. And what is on their minds is spleen, is resentment, the terror of losing control of an America that is now governed by an undemocratic system, whether we're talking about two votes in the Senate for every state or the Electoral College or the peculiar isolation of local from national politics, our inability to even have a grown-up voting system. And, you know, I could go on interminably. He has packaged all the resentments, the nightmare feeling of these 40-ish percent, that if they don't intrude on the normal course of politics, they're going to be swept away. The white male, largely rural or disproportionately rural lock on American politics will go the way of their demographic majority. And time's running out for them. That's why they are in an apocalyptic mood. And they talk about the Flight 93 election. They talk about the engulfment of white people. White genocide is a term that's featured out in some of the goonier regions of their thinking. The conspiracy theories are writ large, a kind of emanation of a furnace that's burning, you know, that's burning itself to a crisp in rage against the losses that the partisans of a Christian nation have felt that they are enduring. Their ability to stick with Trump through every maneuver, through every change of policy and plan, through every murderous charge is a testimony, I think, 
to the wildness, the death cult that's been unleashed in this country. I know this sounds extravagant, but it is my best judgment. You know, I hear that judgment and I think it represents a portion of that coalition. But when I talk to Trump supporters that I know or that I meet, I don't hear quite that. I sometimes hear pro-life people. I sometimes hear people who are discomfited by political correctness and some of the excesses on the left. I hear standard Republicans who feel like he is a disorderly version of them. I hear a lot of rationalization that is sort of in spite of his tweeting and would recoil at this characterization, I think, that you've put forward. They certainly exist. They are, I think, an edge of the Trump base. I think that they are a minority of the Trump base because they have been willing to sacrifice all of their better judgments, all of their sense of human character, all of their sense of how interconnected the world is, all of their sense of what we've achieved in this country over the last 50 years, in exchange for what? Well, judges, we, we know how important the judges are to them. And as you say, abortion for some portion of the population is the ultimate test. It is pure litmus. That by itself is probably about half of the Trump base. The argument that political correctness is an affliction is hard for me to take seriously for the following reason. Anybody who teaches in a university, as I do, knows that the charges are frequently correct. But most people do not live on universities. Most people who channel this line of argument or this, this echo are channeling a kind of uh, unacknowledged rancor, a kind of hatred of the knowledge class, hatred of people who have relatively comfortable professional lives like me, and animus toward thought. It's hard for me to take seriously somebody who rails against political correctness but approves of Trump saying that the educational system needs to be revamped so that Robert E. Lee can be resurrected as a great American. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. It doesn't pass the laugh test. I'm somebody who's been for many years written, I've written at length against the brainless much of the left, the tyrannical tendency within it, and I have not ceased to do so. However, right now, the urgent threat is to American institutions, the independence of, of the American government from reason, the refusal of science, the rejection of public health. Uh, I don't have any trouble putting my crusade against political correctness on hold for another couple of months. Not that I've, you know, I've signed statements and I've written about those depredations. They're real. But come on, people, this is a moment of truth. If you're serious about worrying about the American character, if you're serious about worrying about America's position in the world, if you're serious about the importance of character 
in a political leader, if you're horrified by the surrender of an entire political party to the absolute garbage, nonsense, fake science that they've been besieging us with for years now, if you are content with the way this numbskull has mismanaged and proved delinquent in addressing the COVID virus, be my guest. Walk off the edge of the cliff. Just don't take the rest of us with you. I confess to enjoying your characterization of all that. One of the reasons I think that so many people have taken up with Trump is just these totally different news ecosystems that are out there, the Fox News and Breitbart world versus the Post and the Times and everything else we have. You're a journalism professor, among other things. How do you see where we are in in the development of, of our news ecosystem and, and opinion ecosystem, and how can we get out of the mess we're in because of it? That's a big one. We are afflicted with Rupert Murdoch and his uh, at least half his family. The damage they have done to democracy on three continents, Australia, Europe, and now North America is immoderate, unaccountable, and at best containable. That is to say, given the alignment of American politics, given the takeover of the airwaves by large corporations, given the laissez-faire attitude that uh, the right-wing governments since Reagan have uh, delivered to Murdoch and his collaborators, they can only be contained. They cannot be erased. It's a long story how this happened. The Democrats were complicit in permitting Murdoch to get onto these shores with his operations, which entailed, uh, among other things, a cheat, a misleading purchase of television channels against the law in the 1980s, which in turn put Murdoch in a position to own an entertainment channel that was so lucrative for cable operators that they were inspired to let him try out his news channel, which somebody you or I would not have been able to do. This is a long story, and that, that, that we're now 25, 35 years into that history. And especially this is egregious, given the collapse of the business model of actual news organizations. You know that half of the journalists who were working in American papers uh, and, and news organizations 10 years ago are no longer working. So it will take something that I think many journalists are leery of. I think we need a public subsidy for actual news organizations according to their circulation. You can do this without uh, imposing Stalinist law. The Scandinavian countries do it. All newspapers are subsidized according to their circulation in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And, you know, they're not dictatorships. Most journalists, I think, have a romantic attachment to the idea that they they should not meddle with or be meddled with by the public subsidy. That way lies doom. It's not easily rectified, but this is the sort of the epiphany of the frontier excess 
the, the sort of the fantasy of economic freedom, which looks like Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump. It's not freedom. It is barbarism. That said, it's not going to be easily rolled back. The Republicans have been working on this project of erecting a right-wing echo apparatus for decades now. The right, I think, has an easier time establishing itself in that news ecology because it is more bombastic, more entertaining, less scrupulous, less rational, more, in a certain sense, percussive. So while its audience, Fox News' audience is not huge, but the reverberations are huge, and the money behind the operation is huge. The left has been a second or third best at it. So be it. Here we are. Uh, You cannot erase those institutions, but you do have to contain them. So when you're writing all these things that you're writing, who are you talking to? Who do you see as your audience out there? I don't always see the same audience. Sometimes, as in the piece that just ran today in USA Today, I'm writing to the exactly the kind of person I, I'm directing myself to explicitly, namely a younger person who feels disheartened and defeated by the nomination of Joe Biden. Other times I'm writing for somebody who's more or less like me, but smarter. Sometimes I'm writing for somebody who I think is off the rails, but maybe has half an ear cocked for at least some sobering and intellectually honest questions. Sometimes, probably most of all, I really don't have no idea who I'm writing to. I'm writing to anybody who reads me. (laughs) And, you know, I got some letters today. I got some hate mail. I wasn't writing to these people, but I'm not sorry that I triggered their uh, rage because it reveals how threadbare are their their arguments and their understandings and their human capacities, frankly. But, you know, really, it's a prayer. Writing is a prayer. And I don't ever quite know if anyone is listening. I just do what I can. You wrote a letter to the new, new left, as you called them, from the old left. I Uh, signed it. I didn't write it, but I signed it. You signed it. it. That's right. And I wonder how you characterize the new, new left as someone who you know, was young and in a movement like has come up again. How do you see what's going on right now on the left? I'm very enthusiastic about the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, to me, that's the real deal. That's a popular movement. It was national, uh, continues to be. It's cross-racial. It's cross-generational. It's cross-regional. It's cross-religious. It expresses a faith in human equality, which is, I think, of the essence of the left. And the fact that it burst out spontaneously after the appalling video of George Floyd's murder circulated was a reminder, was a tribute to the vitality that remains, despite Donald Trump and his lockstep party, that remains alive here and that people around the world look to. Uh, even in our desperate state, even in our uh, absurd turning of our backs from the rest of the world, even in our absurd 
climate denial, even in our absurd racism, people are still rooting for America because there's no other place to look for even a, a, a thread of a hopeful, of, a, of an auspicious possibility. So I hope that we can live long enough to look back on this as a nightmare moment that we somehow overcame, but not, of course, not with ease. I remain guardedly optimistic. There's a lot of juice in this old country yet, this country that had the misfortune of becoming the first modern democracy and therefore afflicted with an 18th century constitution, which is so hard to make jibe with the actualities of American life. Why don't we vote on the weekends like most European countries? Why do we vote on Tuesdays? It's a, it's a relic of a bygone era when farmers had needed time to get between the polling place and their farms. I mean, this is an absurdity. Anyway, you know, it's a moment of truth. I know this sounds dramatic. I, I've always been something of a recovering romantic. My romanticism has often led me, uh, or at times led me astray, but mostly I think it's been true to the values that I had as a young activist, which and which I fathom, which I share with the uh, those who have the, the grace or the curse of being young today. I know the arguments, and more than that, that sounds smug. I'm glad I'm not young today. I mean, who wouldn't want to be young? But I'm glad this is really a very poor time to be young. If you're thinking about the stability of life, if you're thinking about the, the honor of decent human relations, if you're thinking about hopes for growth in reason and the capacity for reason, your future is blank. Your future is sheer uncertainty. And as much as I grew up with some of that sentiment, I mean, the issue that ignited me, as it were, when I was in my teens was nuclear weapons, which, by the way, haven't gone away. That was not exactly an invitation to a feeling of global stability. But still in all, I think growing up in the 50s in a middle class family, I couldn't imagine a time when you know, I would have to go back and live with my parents, let's say, when I could not afford to live in half the cities in America. I could not have imagined such a, a sort of a blank, and let alone imagining a higher education system that's been stymied, installed, and, and afflicted by the pandemic, the economic prospects, uh, the food prospects of the world. All of them are egregious. In a certain way, we, we know more about these conditions in the world. We, we are better informed, which is also a weight that we have to carry because I'm not somebody who can go a day without reading the paper, but that means I have to make myself know about what's happening to refugees in Greece, what's happening to the sufferers of famine in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we're much better informed and therefore could conceivably, you know, succumb to uh, the darkness. I wrote a memoir recently, and and it starts with a, something that had struck me a long time ago, uh, but I hadn't really taken on mentally. I'm not a baby boomer. I don't like the whole 
shtick of generations of that sort. But I'm older than baby boomers. I'm a war baby. I was born in 1943. At, at the time I was born, the biggest battle in world history was taking place in Stalingrad. The Nazi army was defeated after months of pulverizing bombardment. The world looked very grim then. I could understand how people might have felt, people of my parents' vintage, might have felt defeated. Hundreds of thousands of people are being killed at war. Millions of Jews are being slaughtered. Americans are fighting on virtually every continent. This is not a, a sunny prospect. So I remind myself that people have come back from calamity. Uh, by the skin of our teeth, to use the name of a, a play I remember seeing on television uh, by Thornton Wilder when I was a kid. By the skin of our teeth. Yes, it's hard now. It's hard to face this murk. To, as a friend of mine puts it, to dog paddle through the miasma, as so many of my <laughs> friends are doing. It is hard, but it, you know, it wasn't easy confronting nuclear weapons either. It wasn't easy confronting the white terrorism, the white supremacy terrorism of the Deep South and the Civil Rights Movement. It wasn't easy to face the racist mob. It wasn't easy to face this hideous, completely brainless and vicious war in Vietnam. Uh, yeah, everybody here on earth has a moment of challenge and and many fears to overcome. You know, whatever progress there is in human history, which is uneven, is always against the odds, always against the odds. I don't think young people today are uniquely afflicted. I do respect the forms that their affliction takes, but I am also mindful of the fact that they are not the first and will not be the last to curse their uh, emergence onto the earth at this particular moment because everything looks so dark. One of the things that young people seem to have a lot of clarity on right now is how our history has been so dark and how it's so full of slavery and racism and abuse of women and imperialism. And it undermines any, for a lot of people, a notion that this country has strengths. And I think one of the things that Trump appeals to is that kind of, you know, make America great again. How do you think about being patriotic in a nation that is so flawed? I distinguish between patriotism and nationalism. I think in a world of nation states, which we're in for the foreseeable future, one is naturally drawn to a sense of belonging to a larger entity which overlaps different kinds of social boundaries, in which we feel something of. We owe, you know, we are inhabited by our nations. I am inhabited by America. I think I was overwhelmed after the election of 2016, like many others, because in part I'd given myself for all of my lengthy entanglements with, with the different curses and blessings of America, I really felt 
uh, America was in me. And if America was being throttled, I was being throttled. I feel that. Patriotism, that kind of allegiance, is different from nationalism, which insists on we, that we are the greatest country that ever lived, which is an absurdity. By what measure? That's one thing I would say. Second thing I would say is that America is a complicated place. We are a nation of slavery, but the enslavers were European. They happened to have territory where they could build the plantations. They offshored their slavery, but that doesn't make them morally superior. Even Europe was not the first enslaving power. Although chattel slavery is itself a variation, a dreadful one, but it's not the only form of slavery that's existed. There is no nation that does not have an ugly past. There is no nation whose origin is not steeped in blood. And I say that quite literally. So yes, we have a dark history. We also have a tradition of resistance and honor and hope, which has inspired many good things in many nations uh, and will continue to do so despite the depredations of somebody who barely knows who Frederick Douglass was, let alone, you know, who uh, Samuel Adams was. America is more than this idiocy. America is more than this uh, appalling abomination. I think the narrative needs to be complicated. The old story about American glory and greatness is, is, is garbage. But the new story about America as nothing but uh, race hatred is also garbage. What are you teaching these days? I'm teaching two graduate classes uh, in our interdisciplinary PhD communications program. One of them I'm co-teaching. Uh, it's on populism, so-called, and uh, the media. The second one is called Disinformation, Fake News, and Democracy. So there's something of an overlap. Well, tell me a little about what your thesis is for each of those. Oh, I don't think there's a single thesis. About disinformation, I don't know that I have anything terribly original to say. The, the spread of disinformation, the multimedia, multi-channel diffusion of it, the ooze of it is uh, of an unprecedented intensity and reach. It comes from many sectors. So, so, you know, part what we do in the class, for example, next week, this coming week, uh, we're reading segments of Hitler's Mein Kampf. Hitler had, as it turns out, I was many years before I could bring myself to read the book. It's online and it's searchable, which is a nice thing reading online. So I was able to find all the mentions of propaganda in Mein Kampf and to pull them out and assign them for reading. And what's interesting is that he has actually fairly sophisticated, a disturbingly sophisticated argument about how to do propaganda. He thinks that it goes in two stages. You have the, the intense, feverish uh, completely unscrupulous propaganda that is intended to keep your own troops rallied, your own goons, your own SS men, your own party members enthused. And then you have the wider ring, 
concentric circle of propaganda, which is meant for the masses or the un, uninducted, and that you'd use different techniques to rally the two of them. I found this, I found this a very helpful and, and a disturbingly helpful pointer to how the world of propaganda and disinformation work today. Did it seem to apply well to what Trump does? Yes, I think in this case, let's call it, you know, sort of Radio Trump, which is an enterprise that includes him, but is by no means limited to him. And I don't think actually offers him the initiative, but the apparatus, which includes Fox News and especially his favorite demagogues of the moment, Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, and so on, they are pumping their bile into their reliables, a few million, who in turn then radiate those signals outward in a form that's accessible to a much larger number of people through social media, so-called. Yes, I, th- I do see this two-step process. There is no Hitler at the center of it, but there's a kind of Hitler machine. And fortunately, it is not all-encompassing. Fortunately, we still have legal political parties and some independence, both among jurists and among journalists. You know, we have actually a quite surprisingly exhilarating degree of resistance that, frankly, I feared we would not see. History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Sometimes the rhymes are really ugly. And the history of fascism, which in some ways, in our case, is actually Trump is closer to Mussolini than to Hitler in his inconsistency. You always knew what Hitler thought. You had to get the Jews and get the communists. Mussolini was all over the place. Sometimes he was pro-labor. He began as a socialist. The one constant in Mussolini's world was violence, uh, warlike violence and warring violence. But sometimes he was in with the Catholic Church. Sometimes he was opposed to it. He was constantly rotating his staff, uh, firing uh, cabinet ministers and so on. Uh, And there's a kind of the, the vanity that one sees in the clips of Mussolini strutting across the mock Roman ruins, I think are quite reminiscent of Trump. Or to put it the other way around, it's very clear to me that Trump has studied Mussolini, the jut of the jaw. You won't see it in the early Trump when he was Mr. Playboy. No question, but that he, the, the strutting glow that he receives and gives to his followers is very much in the, the Mussolini tradition. Given all that going on, what makes you optimistic, if anything? I was never optimistic. I don't insist on being optimistic. I don't think it matters whether I'm optimistic or not. I actually am of a better temper, of a more benign uh, mood than most people I know at this point. And maybe it's because I'm active. Uh, Maybe it's because I'm old and I've seen poison before and can remember times of despair that I weathered, not always easily. To be hopeful, one does not need to be optimistic. Hope is is a disposition toward life. And it's specifically a disposition that urges you to look for the light, at not at the cost of intellectual clarity or honesty, 
but simply with the insistence that we're human. We're not inert. We are not simply tossed about by the gods or by the volcanoes or the tsunamis. We are capable of uh, extraordinary things. I learned a lot from Albert Camus when I first read him in my freshman year in college, and I I often recur to him one of his wonderful observations or faiths, I would say, articles of faith, is that there is always more in humans to admire than to deplore. So I try to keep my eyes on the prize. Somehow the direction of the country and the direction of the planet is going to come down to some number of voters in, say, Pennsylvania or a few states. The election for a lot of those people is not going to be about that kind of fate. It's going to be about pro or anti-fracking or, you know, some piece of a big puzzle. How do you think about 2020 as an election, which has so much writing on it, but is going to be decided by so many bizarre little pieces? Well, I, I think history is full of contrived corridors, as T.S. Eliot wrote. It, it's full of contingencies and luck, bad and good. Many people are involved in making history who don't quite understand what history it is they're making. They think they're just making a decision about who to, who to support for city council. But in the meantime, there are immensities at stake. I think it's ever thus. I think many people, I think typically people are, at least in our culture, are inattentive, otherwise preoccupied. So in a certain way, you you look at the immensities that follow from little decisions made. You know, the vote in Michigan hinged on two votes per precinct. You know, total of 77,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. So, you know, where's the reason? Where's Hegel's logic of reason in history? It's, that's an absurdity. And so yet more absurdity will be upon us, and people will make their judgments according to standards that would not inspire uh, theorists of democracy and the idea of the informed citizen. Nonetheless, uh, there it is. I mean, that's the territory. Politics is messy. Democracy is awfully messy. People do a lot of the right things for the wrong reason and vice versa. And there it is. You do politics, to paraphrase the, uh, the wise man, Donald Rumsfeld, you, you do politics with the people you have, not the people you wish you had. Yep. It seems like the difference between another calamity and sort of a rescue from the cliff may be very slender and bizarrely reasoned. It may be. But, you know, as Yogi Berra said, I never make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> yeah, good point. Todd, is there a question that I failed to ask that you wish you could answer? I guess, in a way, this brushes by some subjects we've already discussed. How do you want to live, is the question. For me, every day, how do you want to live? I have no illusions about my efficacy in the world. I'm, I'm a drop in, a, in an ocean. But I have no illusions that I want to live any other way. To me, 
how I want to live is in resistance to abominations and with the capacity to see the flickers of light that uh, that radiate from people of like mind and, and, and spirit. One of the beauties of my political life is how frequently I've been thrown together with people in whom I recognize a common or a compatible intelligence and, and spirit, heart, openness. I want to live with those people, with the best, you know, my best uh, resources uh, mobilized. It's not simply a question of what do you think will happen. I never had any idea what would happen. The whole world might have blown up when I was 19 years old during the missile crisis. It was much closer to total obliteration than even I knew at the time. And I was deeply immersed in those events and that history. You know, who knows, but what is possible now? And, you know, we only get to play this this planetary history once. We don't get to do it. There's no do-over. So it's a question really since the future is blank. How do you want to live? I find myself nodding my head and thinking about how I want to live in that context. And I really feel honored that you took the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I like going into this territory from time to time. It's important. That was Professor Todd Gitlin of Columbia University. He is at toddgitlin.net. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.